The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. I would work a lot. I think my hard work is probably the best thing I can offer. I'm not super intelligent. I'm not excellent with machines, but I can offer hard work. And I do show up early and I work late. And when I get involved in a problem, I really get down to, you know, the main potatoes of it. I, I really want to learn. So I, being timely, being early, and also working long hours, that helps. Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Paxson Matthews, who is a mechanical engineer and has been involved with engineering projects in a variety of industries, from consumer products to aviation to medical devices and even a brush with automotive. He also brings with him something that is a first for a guest on the podcast. Paxson is deaf, and that's one of the things we'll discuss today. But before we get into all of that, Paxson, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate your invitation, and um, I'm excited to be on your show. Awesome. So we are using an interesting setup today. We're recording on the same platform we usually record on, but we're also using Google Hangouts, and that is translating what I say in real time so Paxson can read it. So I might be speaking a little bit slower than normal, just so Google Hangouts can translate what I say and we can communicate. All right, so with that said, let's start off, Paxson, with this question. How did you decide to become an engineer? All right, so I decided to become an engineer after um, actually going through biology. My first year in college was through um, studies of just basically human anatomy, and I decided to switch over to mechanical engineering because I really liked the idea of deriving things, and I like to problem solve. So getting out of that um, kind of the hard science and the bio stuff and kind of getting more into mathematics. So that was, that was basically why I decided to jump ship on biology in the first place. And switch over to um, um, mechanical engineering. Uh, interesting. So you were a biology major to start with, and then you switched to mechanical engineering. Did you ever consider biomedical engineering? Um, actually, the schools that I was looking at were, um, they didn't involve that program. They didn't have that. I really wanted to study at Gonzaga University because I liked Spokane, and um, I liked being in Washington, but um, yes, I'm actually kind of considering going back to school for more biomechanical or biomedical engineering. Nice. Are you from Washington? I think I saw that you lived in Alaska for some time as well. That's correct. Um, I, I was actually born and raised in a rural small town in Alaska, just right at the base of Mount McKinley. What was that like growing up in Alaska? Uh, it was very interesting. The town that I grew up in only had about 2,000 people, and I lived there until I was 18 years old, and I, I didn't really see how different it was from the, you know, the real, the real world, the lower 48. 
And after going to college, I was kind of shocked just to find out that, you know, there's so much out there that, like, involves people, the cities, you know, everything was just, it was so fast-paced. What were some of the biggest differences that you encountered after leaving your small town of 2,000 residents in Alaska? Oh, man, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing that I experienced that was just kind of cause of shock was just the sheer, like, amount of people that were out there in the world. Um, I had been able to travel during high school a little bit, but I didn't really get a, a full taste of what living in a city was like. And I, I originally moved to Anchorage, the largest town in Alaska, um, right after I graduated high school. And that was my first taste of city life. And I, I wasn't very fond of it at first. But after I started to get in the hang of it, I started to enjoy it. Was there anything else, any other big shocks moving to a larger city after growing up in a, a small rural town? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the first one was just how close people live together. <laughs> um, it was a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable for me to first move into my, um, my initial apartment that I was living in. Um, during my freshman year at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. And um, I just, uh, it was weird for me to always have to keep the shades shut and just be conscious about what I was doing in my own home because I almost felt like I was being watched at that, just in the privacy of my own home. So that was interesting. Where you grew up, was it the kind of town where everyone just left their doors unlocked at night and you didn't really have to worry about that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. It was really low-key. I mean, I, I never locked my doors. I think the biggest threat there was um, animals like moose and bears. <laughs> <laughs> How interesting. <laughs> I, I want to dig into this a little bit more because Alaska is such a, a, a interesting, unique place. And I know it has nothing to do with engineering, but let's talk about this for just a few more minutes. What What were some of the unique aspects of growing up, not necessarily just in this small town, but in Alaska. I mean, you mentioned that animals were some of the biggest, I don't know if threat is the right word, but obstacles or things to be careful of. What what else? Yeah, I, I, I know that uh, you have very little daylight time in the winter. Uh, what, what was that? It, it seems like an experience from almost a different country almost. And the daylight didn't really bother me growing up just because um, I was always into playing basketball and just kind of being an athletic kid and studying with school. I was very scholastic and was always always into trying to get my best grades. Um, but I think, I think the most unique part of Alaska is you kind of develop a mindset there of how to have your own fun. Um, hmm. And you don't really rely on others to have this fun. So you have fun in the wilderness. You go fishing, um, you go kayaking. You're, there's always room for paddleboarding on lakes. It's just it's you and the outdoors. So there there are not really city features around to visit. I mean, the closest grocery store was about two hours away. So it's it's really a, a different lifestyle and what's just so weird is after 18 years of that, that was, that was norm to me. And then moving out of there, what was normal to everyone else 
was abnormal to me. And so when I adjusted to city life, <laughs> it's very interesting. I would always say these things like and feel like a foreigner. Um, my friends would just live say, "Where did you get that from?" This is absolutely, absolutely normal. No, <laughs> but, but I started to adjust, and I've lived in Seattle since, and I'm I'm actually really enjoying city life. It's really interesting that you mentioned you have to find ways to create your own fun growing up in Alaska, and I wonder how that has affected you as an engineer. I mean, nowadays I know my kids have so many options for fun things to do, right? Whether it's like video game. Well, most of them are centered in a screen, some kind of screen, video game or watching YouTube or TV or movies. And then there are just the plethora of toys available, right? There are all these motorized scooters and bikes and all these things. But it sounds like you didn't necessarily have all of those options and you had to come up with your own methods of recreation I imagine that cultivates a very creative um, uh, mind, uh, one of ingenuity and resourcefulness. Do you think that has uh, become an advantage or a benefit to you as an engineer? Uh, So I like that you really touched on that last part, resourcefulness. That's basically kind of what I'm going to share my answer around here. Um, I think when you grow up in the woods, you don't have a lot. You have scrap wood, you have um, the outdoors, you have animals, you have marshes, lakes, ponds, some water areas, you have mountains to climb and stuff. But you really learn to do your best with just very little. And um, growing up, I remember at about third grade, I started to build my own forts and I really started falling in love with this, just tree forts. And I would build them all over my parents' property. We owned about 44 acres. And I would make these dangerous tree forts with scrap wood about six stories high. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure your parents loved that. <laughs> well, um uh, uh, you have, I think, a, a unique background being being deaf. And how, how has that shaped your perspective on being an engineer? Actually, before we get into that, uh, I, I think you weren't always deaf. This was uh, something that occurred as you were growing up. Could you talk just a little bit about, you know, that, that transition going from being able to hear to not being able to hear? And then how, how has that affected you as an engineer? Absolutely. Um, I would love to chat about that. So um, I, I was actually, um, we call it a quote-unquote hearing person. In the deaf world, there's a hearing person and there's a deaf person. But um, growing up, I was a hearing person. And um, I actually lost my hearing when I was 19 years old. It was after my first year in college. So... I was learning a new subject, trying to develop, you know, what I wanted to be in life. And then all of a sudden I lost my hearing. So my, my circle just kind of shrunk. My world just shrunk. My friends kind of left me and I had to learn a new language and everything just felt so foreign. So I actually took one year off of school just to 
think about my my situation. I started learning American Sign Language because I understood that communication is kind of the foundation for, I would even say, success. Um, and without hearing, I couldn't receive any information verbally. So I knew that I needed some way to be able to fully express myself in a natural language and also get information from friends, colleagues, other people in, in a natural form. And at the time, artificial intelligence, it wasn't as fast as it is now. And we couldn't just use a phone and have speech to text there on an application. So we had to do it all manually. And I feel really old for saying this, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it, it really forced me to dive into the language of American Sign Language. And so I took two college courses of American Sign Language, and that gave me enough confidence to go back to school, actually. And that's when I redirected paths from biology to mechanical engineering. And, um, uh, wow, that, that was, that was a major chapter of my life, just kind of like, sure, out my identity as a deaf person. And, um, I also learned that there was an entire culture out there of deaf people. And I was trying to pick up on that and gain more friends that I could actually communicate with. So that, that was a, a big challenge that I had to overcome there when I was just 19 years old. Did this happen very quickly or did you see it coming? I did. I actually had about one year to prepare. And that's when I started looking at YouTube videos and started to get interested in uh, sign language. But I knew that I had a, um, a brain tumor, actually, that was on my acoustic nerve. And it it was growing ever so slowly. But one day it just started to pinch out my hearing. And when it started to pinch out my hearing, when I started no noticing that difference after I went to doctors, they basically said, you've got about one year before your hearing is going to be completely gone. Wow. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Uh, you mentioned taking a year off, which is completely understandable. How how did you get through that year? I mean, what what was that like? And what were some of the tools you used to kind of pull yourself out of that dark place and get your life back on track. Um, I, I actually, I moved back in with my parents and I just reassessed my whole life. I, I knew that I wanted to be successful and I knew that I had these goals of uh, my first goal was to become a surgeon. I'm a neurosurgeon actually. And uh, after that, I was just, uh, I was just kind of thinking, what can I do? I, I want to be productive. I want to contribute to society. So I just, uh, just slowly started to build my momentum after I lost my hearing. I said, okay, first, what do I need? I need communication. Secondly, what are my goals? I still want to achieve things in my life. And third, it's like, where do I want to go to school? So I just started putting in these other applications. And I knew I didn't want to live in Alaska anymore. I needed some more sunshine in my life because I didn't want to get depressed. And I decided at Gonzaga University in Spokane was an awesome fit. And so I threw in my application and they, they said, come and visit in the fall. So, all right. I love how you put that together. I mean, it's so linear. I, I need to do A, then I need to do B, then I need to do C. That is totally the mind of an engineer. 
Well, um, learning the engineering profession, I think, is difficult enough for those of us with perfect hearing. So how, how did your hearing loss affect the way you learned as an engineering student? So this leads right into what I was previously saying about how I was learning basically another language at the same time as learning the profession of engineering. So I knew that I needed some way to access lectures and I was going to do that through American Sign Language, but it's really hard for me to dedicate enough time to learn American Sign Language and still give my studies enough time as well because that was my main goal for school so what i ended up using is i ended up using kind of a live caption service where someone would listen through skype they would listen to the um the lecture and then they would they would type that out and that would come up on my screen real time of course the transcripts were not perfect so what i ended up having to do is i had to read a lot i basically read every word of my textbooks and I would spend a lot of long hours just studying and I mean, there's hope out there, but again, it's not perfect. And when you go to a private university, they don't experience a lot of people with disabilities. So their, their support service is not, they're not really ready for someone that is deaf. I think I was maybe one of the first people to graduate from Godlike University that was deaf. And you just you have to make your own rules you you have to figure out what works for you and i figured that reading the books reading the textbooks was an excellent way to pass exams and to learn the material yeah that just takes an already difficult curriculum and makes it exponentially harder well, before we get into your engineering career, I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about a role that you had before becoming an engineer. You spent about five years as a commercial fishing deckhand, and on its surface, that appears to have nothing to do with engineering, but I'd love to talk about that experience a little. How did it start? So it was actually a family business, and I got my foot in the door with my uncle. He owned a boat, and he said, basically, when you turn 16, you can come and fish for me. And I really enjoyed fishing, so I thought, hey, let's give it a try. And that was my first summer on the boat, and then I spent five years after that, and it actually worked really well to keep that going during the summers and then go to school during the winters and the falls. Because it would just, it would completely pay for school. And it was nice to go to school and not have to worry about debt or taking on loans because I was earning enough capital just through fishing. Um, um, it was, it was actually commercial long lining, by the way. We weren't fishing with nets. Um, so we fished from the bottom of the ocean or on the bottom of the ocean with about three mile line long, sorry, three mile, three mile long lines and wow. about 2000 hooks on each line. Oh my goodness. For halibut and black cod. I think there are some reality TV shows about Alaskan uh, fishing boats. And I, I've never watched any of them, but I've heard stories about them that they're, they're kind of crazy. I mean, dangerous and just really intense experiences. Was that your experience as well? It's funny you say that because my uncle was actually a crabber. And if he was about, 
30 years younger, he would have been on TV. And so he always talks about how he missed that opportunity to be famous. <laughs> well, you talked about some dangerous conditions and even catastrophes that required creative solutions on the commercial fishing boat. Can you share a few of those experiences and the solutions you came up with? Absolutely. So I think I have two stories in mind for this question here. So one was just when a flange broke. We had all of our gear in the water. So that means that we had 2,000 hooks down at the bottom of the ocean, and they had fish on all of them, most of them, and then our two buoys to show where we were. So they would be on both ends of the line. And we went to basically pick our gear up and put it on it, like a big roller on the back. We have hydraulics and connected it to that roller. And we'll, we, when we connect it, all of a sudden it just takes off going the wrong way. It doesn't hold. The roller doesn't hold. And we realized that one of the flange pieces had broken due to the torque on the reel. And so we had to haul it back. We had to pull it back manually. And it's very heavy. I mean, when you have the weight of your anchors and all the fish and all the gear and the water. It takes three miles of line. Back to the boat. So we had to pull it back, untie it, and then we had to throw the buoy back out and make sure that the fish would just stay in the water because after you start taking them off the bottom of the ocean, they kind of start moving around a little bit more and they create knots. So we, we had to keep it back in the ocean when we thought about how to fix the problem. And we didn't want to leave the fish out yet. So uh, we basically came up with a makeshift solution to tie some rope around the axle shaft that would act as kind of like um like a, a stop. It was like a latch that would like that would hook on and allow us to run the hydraulics. <laughs> and normally a set takes about two hours to pull in all of the fish, and it took about six hours because it kept slipping, and we would have to untie it and pull it back and pull it back manually. So it was a long set, um, but after we figured that problem out, we took our boat back and we got it fixed. I think, do you want a second story? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is better than reality TV. This is live and in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the second story was wild. So my cousin actually took a really big hook through the meat of his hand, and it was in part of the storm we had 12 foot seas going on and we only had a 30 foot 32 foot boat and we were taking a lot of water on the sides of our boats and he went to take one of the hooks off of the line that's normally supposed to be on the bottom of the ocean just where we're holding it up and you have to unhook every single hook and hook them all back on when you set it back in in the water and when he reached for one of the hooks, he ran the hydraulics at the same time, and the hook just swung around and basically stuck him right in the meat of the hand. And <laughs> his face immediately turned white. And so we're like, all right, okay, how are we going to solve this? Um, the problem was, is with the hook, there's a really large barb on the backside, so you can't just back it out. And we were originally going to saw it, but we decided to use some some severe leverage there, and we used some really big, hefty um, wire cutters. And it took two people, actually, one in each side of the, the lever arm to 
clip the wire or clip the hook, and then we were able to back it out without the board. No wonder people get paid so much money to be deckhands on these commercial fishing boats with risks like that. That's amazing. Wow. Well, let me take just a quick break here and share with the listeners that testfixturedesign.com is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other device engineering teams who need turnkey automated equipment or custom test fixtures to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. We're speaking with Paxson Matthews today. And uh, Paxson, you you participated in a project called Smart Mouth Technology. Can you tell us a little about that project and what your role was? Absolutely. So this is probably my favorite engineering project I've done so far out of my entire career. It's also my first. And what the device was, it was basically um, leveraging feeling instead of hearing. So we call it sensory substitution. And blind people use the same concept with Braille. So they basically read with their feeling, with, with their fingertips. And so it's translating feeling into words and then that can cognitively display whatever you want it to be. So back in the 60s, there was um, this renowned scientist. His name was Blocky Rita. And we were trying to develop some instruments that kind of followed his pathway. And so the centralized concept was um, a sensory substitution. So what we did is we actually built a device that would it would listen with your smartphone and it would be connected to your smartphone wirelessly, but it would sit inside of your mouth, on the roof of your mouth, actually. And since the tongue is so highly innervated, you can press your tongue up against the roof of your mouth, and then there would be a nice electrode array that would display electrical impulses um, in relation to whatever the sound was being produced by your environment. So certain frequencies would produce certain like small shocks on different parts of your tongue. And through our algorithms, we created a code that would, it would leverage lip reading because for example, um, phonemes like P and B, like P and B, those two are really difficult to discern the difference between when you're lip reading. And so we used frequency to basically set those apart. And so if you would experience, or if, if P would be received by the whole device, then it would shock basically the front of your tongue. But if B would be received by the device, then it would shock the back. And we would make sure that we would set those very far away from each other. Mm. So the user could easily discern the difference between the two. So Interesting. Actually, my part in this project was it was not so much with the design of the device. It was more of taking the batteries of the device outside of the mouth because it's dangerous to have batteries inside of the mouth. And so I, I wanted to create a human transformer, essentially, and pass power up through the neck and be caught in the mouth. And um, it was kind of a, it was interesting because I had about three months to do this, and it was a major crash course in electronics, and I had a lot of fun with that. 
how how did the electrical impulses work? I mean, was it communicating um, like letters, and then in your mind you would have to string those letters together and spell out a word, or were there certain patterns that correlated with certain words? It was basically syllables. So each syllable would be com- converted into voltage, and then that voltage would be passed through a filter through if it was high or low or whatever, whatever that frequency was. And depending on where it was on the frequency spectrum, spectrum, that's what electrodes would be fired for that. So one word, if it was a line word, it could have maybe three electrical impulses, but it would light up different parts of this mouthpiece. How well did it work? I mean, could you actually use it to communicate effectively? So... I was working with the very, very early development stages of it, but I actually was able to, uh, I was able to get a chance to test it. And we did some user testing on me. And um, I think we noticed just a very slight improvement, but the idea of sensory substitution is it's it's based on brain plasticity and Mm. the brain evolves very slowly over time. So it's, I think, one reason why we didn't see so much gain in our experiments is we didn't allow enough time to progress for my brain to basically learn that new language. Um, right. Right. Because it is a completely new language. Just like learning uh, American Sign Language is learning a new language, right? You have to give yourself time to pick up these frequencies and patterns that you're feeling on your tongue and learn how to convert those to understandable communication. That's correct. One thing that I just wanted to add really quickly to give everyone a feel for what the shocks actually felt like is um, there's a candy out there called Pop Rocks. (laughs) (laughs) I love Pop Rocks. Really similar to Pop Rocks. Well, if it tasted anything similar, you can sign me up. I'm I'm all over that. <laughs> uh, um, you worked as an aircraft mechanic at K2 Aviation, and one of your claimed victories there was regularly completing assignments early. And I loved that because that's a habit that I developed a long time ago myself that has proven to be tremendously valuable. Uh, I had a, a customer once who, I don't know why he said this, but we were talking one day and he he looks at me and says, Aaron, I bet you were the kind of person in college that waited till the last minute to study for the test. And I said, no, I was the exact opposite. I was the guy who started studying like two weeks in advance, partly because academics never came very easily to me, but also because I've always just been a very prepared person. So I love the idea of, of starting early and, and getting finished early. Um, why was it important to you to complete assignments, not just on time, but, but early? And what were some tactics that you used to do that? Because it's, it's hard to have the discipline, you know, to schedule yourself so that you finish things early. Thank you for sharing. I really, I really appreciate that. So I feel the same way about getting things done early. Um, I, th- I think as far as productivity goes and stress goes, uh, we're way better off getting things done early in the business world. Um, but the reason why I would do that is because I really wanted to prove myself 
at that job, I wanted to show my colleagues and people that I was working with that I had the mechanical aptitude because I was going to school as a mechanical engineer at the same time. And I think I, I had really high expectations on my part of myself, not only from me, but also from the people I was working with. And one of the main reasons why I actually picked up the job was because I wanted to have kind of the second side of mechanical engineering. So I was starting to learn all of the book stuff of mechanical engineering, but I didn't want to lose my hands on aptitude. So as far as getting things in early, how did I get things in early? <laughs> I would work a lot. I think my hard work is probably the best thing I can offer. I'm not super intelligent. I'm not excellent with machines, but I can offer hard work and I do show up early and I work late. And when I get involved in a problem, I really get down to, you know, the main potatoes of it. I, I really want to learn. So I, being timely, being early, and also working long hours, that helped. Um, secondly, I think was scheduling myself and knowing um, what my week would look like. So I, I wanted to be really organized with my work, and we would do things called 100-hour maintenance checks. So the plans that we were working on would actually shuttle climbers up to Mount McKinley. And every 100 hours, they needed certain things checked, like ailerons or actuators or the wheels replaced or things like that. And so we would have a list of all of these things that need to be done, and we would log the hours of each plan, and then I could see what my work was going to be you know, what it would look like during the week. And I think I would, I would really use this to my advantage. I think the last thing that contributed to um, getting my work done early was I knew when to ask questions. So I had a lot of questions on the job. It's new. I didn't really know a lot about plans, but I had the drive and I was working with a lot of really talented people, a lot of talented mechanics. And when I would get stuck on something, I would just ask questions. I knew when, when to stop. I like that you talked about scheduling. I think that is an underutilized tool. I typically start my weeks either Sunday evening or Monday morning by identifying all the things that I want to accomplish that week. And then the ones that are really top priority of the utmost importance I schedule those into my week so I know exactly when they're going to happen. In fact, at the end of last year, I went through an exercise where I identified the goals that I wanted to accomplish in 2021. And these are, are larger goals, goals that are going to take many months, maybe even up to a year to accomplish. And what kind of surprised me about that exercise was my goal was to uh, plan for how I was going to accomplish these goals. And what ended up happening was I didn't really think that much about the technical aspects of the goals. What I did think a lot about was how am I going to ensure I have enough time and that I actually spend that time working on the goals. And it ended up being just creating recurring calendar events in my calendar. So every week I have, you know, two hours on Tuesday and three hours on Wednesday morning, and they're all scheduled in there. So I have this dedicated time that's already reserved to work on these goals. It's kind of like, this is getting a little long winded, but it's kind of like 
um, when a company offers a 401k plan. And instead of the money going to the employee and then going into the 401k plan, it just goes straight to the 401k plan and never even sees, you know, your personal bank account. Uh, It's the same thing. I don't leave this scheduling up to chance. If I have time, I guess I'll work on this goal. Nope, I've scheduled it in, so it's automatically going to happen. And that's been a good tool for me. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really like what you have to say about goal setting there. Um, I think that's super important and it's interesting to talk about setting goals inside of goals Um, and, you know, being efficient with your time management there and setting aside just a brief little bit to really unpack about what you want to achieve. So I think that's super important and definitely a key attribute to someone that's well-organized. Yeah. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about your time working at a company called Ventana Medical Systems. And one of the problems that that you solved there was eliminating fastener alignment failures. Um, Eliminating fastener alignment failures within the instrument uh, manufacturing environment. And that I don't know why, for some reason, that just sounded kind of interesting to me. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. I, I imagine there was some interesting engineering that went into that solution. Can you give us uh, a bit more background on the problem and then um, share about the solution that you implemented? Absolutely. So my original work there at Ventana was going to be with R&D, and then we had a heavy pull towards quality when we were trying to push one of the instruments out and get it on market. So what we ended up doing is we we chose to review all of the fastener checks or all of the fastener um, points on the entire um, instrument because we were having some issues with manufacturing and some of the pilot instruments were seeing Whole misalignment, and they were being kind of um, difficult to um, assemble with the assemblers. And so we we actually made a, a poll to review every single part on these instruments, and they were very convoluted instruments, super complex, like over one thousand parts, you know, moving parts. Wow. And um, you can imagine the size of a refrigerator, but it processes all kinds of slides that receive um, these biopsies from patients. And basically the slides have to, they have to be stained to illuminate the cancer. And the pathologists can easily detect if the cancer is, you know, triple negative or what kind it is, if it's completely negative all the way, or, you know, they have, they have receptors that just, um, this says will bind to and so it, it automates the whole process and has to um, sterilize all of the fluid so there are all sorts of different um, components to these instruments and one major problem was that just the holes they weren't aligning and when we actually started to get into this I thought it was going to be fairly boring but I started to develop a really magnificent appreciation for geometric dimensioning and tolerancing because you have your placement of the hole that the screw is going into and then you have the placement of the hole 
that the screw is going through and then you have the dimensions of both of those holes so there's actually there's a lot going on and sometimes it gets even more complicated when there are say four holes or five holes or something and these can adjust maybe in the x or the y dimension and so i actually developed a really big appreciation for this and um we we basically adjusted the parts from like outside to inside and tackling this problem was it was not an easy task it actually required about five engineers and so we took on maybe five months just to review all of them um look at priority of the fastener alignment checks and just run the numbers it was, it was a lot of number crunching and then after we we decided which parts needed to be redone then we went through engineering change orders and we would redline everything um and make sure that these parts were gonna gonna be produced perfectly at worst case scenario and what was was the solution uh, to use GDNT as opposed to typical tolerances? What uh, what ended up being the solution that worked? In general, yes, but overall, we didn't want to make huge adjustments to the parts because we already had the instrument built. It was just we needed to make some small adjustments, and when we could implement GDNT, then that's when we used that. And it worked, I guess. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> That's great. I love it. The engineering process strikes again. Fantastic. Well, you are, um, you're working as a freelancer right now. And um, uh, t- tell me a little bit about freelancing. What, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? So freelancing is kind of a whirlwind. You never really know what to expect. Um, I originally jumped into freelancing when I got a random request to um, just work with a TV lift company. And they needed someone to migrate all of their files from Onshape, oh, sorry, from SolidWorks to Onshape. And it's just this new cloud-based software that is, it's a CAD computing software. But I started jumping into that. And after that project, I noticed how much I really enjoyed just working for myself. And I could work anywhere that I wanted. I could work on the schedule that I wanted. And it was all up to me to basically get that work done in a certain amount of time. And um, after I picked up that job, uh, that was when I realized that I don't have to rely on a corporation to support me. And that was fun because I didn't necessarily like living in Arizona because I'm from Alaska and growing up in Alaska, you used to really cold temperatures. And when you get somewhere that get up to 150 degrees Fahrenheit, it's, it's just uncomfortable. So I wanted to move back to the North, the Pacific Northwest, but I didn't really know how to do that and still be working. So I took my freelancing work with me and I loaded up my Jeep everything and i drove north and i moved to seattle for two years and i decided hey let's be a freelancer in seattle and since then i've just got to work on some of the most amazing projects a lot of my work is with um it's early stage startups and they don't really know what they're doing and i say hey you know i can offer my services and help you out i can push your product to production so let's work together and it's been a blast 
What are some aspects of freelancing that uh, engineers working full-time for a company might not fully realize or appreciate without having done so themselves? This is an excellent question. I think having the set salary as um, a corporate worker is so incredibly overlooked is because you know exactly what you're going to earn in one year. And as a freelancer, you really have to work for your money. You do a lot of work by the hour. And if you don't wake up in the morning and you don't go to work, you're not going to make any money. So I think a lot of people that, that work for firms, I think they, they kind of um, take that for granted. So I think that would be some advice just to kind of kind of count that blessing. That's It's, it's really nice to have a steady salary there. Um, and I think that's overlooked a lot. Sure. Yeah, I, I know I spent um, several years myself doing freelance work. And I hear what you're saying loud and clear. You have to hustle to get enough work. But the freedom, I remember I worked a lot more hours when I was freelancing than I did when I had been an employee at a company. But I was okay with that because it was so much more rewarding to kind of be my own boss and be able to set my own rules. That for me trumped the mild disadvantage of having you know to work a lot because you're wearing all these different hats. Um, how 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 did you become confident even that you could make a living as a freelancer? Like how did you know that you could do that? You know how did you know how to find your own work? How did you know how to manage your own schedule? That's a pretty big leap from working in a in a you know a corporate environment. Yeah, I, I think it is. It's really a confidence thing. So at the beginning, I would just apply to really simple jobs. And I would say, hey, look, I'll do some CAD work for you in exchange for a few dollars. And after I started getting some momentum and building profile and showing community basically what I can do and actually displaying my skills, then I started picking up more involved engineering opportunities. And now I'm I'm in charge of full-on product design. That's fantastic. Um, there, there's a uh, a group I'm a part of, and it's kind of a business development group. And someone I can't remember who it was shared this framework for thinking about how I don't even know what the right words are to describe it. It's like how to uh, how to how to price yourself or how to grow your your services. Anyway, the framework is get cheap, get busy, get good, get expensive. And I always thought that was, that was really good advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of fees that you have to skirt around. So you have to be really careful about where your time goes. It's easy to just dump a lot of time into working with clients or writing proposals and not making any money so you have to be really careful and stick up for your yourself you know, and yeah. let the people that you work with you have to you have to say no a lot <laughs> <laughs> yep absolutely well we're getting close to time so let me just do one more question for you uh you're working on a project right now it's a, a wearable product dealing with air purification what can you tell us about that project 
So the project is called Airmate, and actually, I just finished it up this morning. Um, nice. We had a final meeting, so um, the MVP should be coming out here shortly. It's with a company in Bangladesh, and their idea was to basically make kind of a lanyard system that would blow air up in front of your breathways, and it would purify the air around you but also give you um, a second option to kind of connect a little bit of a hose and then that hose could connect to a face mask and then it would be 100% purification. But there were two main reasons why they came up with this idea and I think it's just, it's perfectly timed. So one, obviously the virus right now with, with the pandemic and then two, because the pollution in Bangladesh is so horrible. Um, the kids keep experiencing lung problems and so they wanted to kind of solve this problem somehow and so they brought me on and i i took it from concept two not quite production but concept to their final design and they're working on 3d printing and then it's optimized for injecting injection molding so they will see that through to production years surely Fantastic. That's very cool. What a neat idea. I imagine uh, being that it's, it's I guess, headquartered in Bangladesh, is probably needs to be a fairly inexpensive device as well. That's absolutely correct. Yep. Budget was a major, major um, feature that we had to work around. And I was doing almost work for free, but I really love what I do. So I was investing my time to just just help them get off the ground and I think they've developed some other devices. The company is called Tech Geeks and um, just a really great group of guys from Bangladesh. Very cool. Well, best of luck with that. I hope it, hope it turns out really well and a huge success. Well, Paxson, um, before I let you go, how can people get a hold of you? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are going to listen to this and think, you know what, we need some help, some engineering help. We don't quite have enough resources. This Paxson guy sounds pretty smart. We should give him a ring, hit him up. How can people get a hold of you? So right now I've been working through Upwork. So my first and last name is Paxson Matthews. That's just P-A-X-S-O-N and then Matthews with two T's. But I also have a LinkedIn. Um, and aside from that, I mean, email works great, too. It's just my first and last name at gmail.com. So reach out if you have any questions. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Paxson, thank you so much for sharing the stories with us today. This was awesome. I really appreciate having the chance to talk with you and wish you the absolute best with your freelancing and everything else you're working on. Thanks, Aaron, for having me. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.